Welcome to the Sunny Hill Podcast. This message was recorded at our pool campus. For more information about service times and locations, please visit sunnyhill.church. Who's ready for this? Put your hand up if you've got one of these sheets. This is just to help you kind of track with today's message. We believe today's message is a significant message for the church, as are the next four weeks. We're calling this series uh, Dream Builders. And really, it's in alignment with what Richard has just been speaking about in relation to reaching for your preferred cereal or your preferred future. Um, You don't have to track with this. If it feels too much like schoolwork, feel free to leave it. It's just there to facilitate and help you kind of track with today's content. If you have any questions in relation to this morning's message or the whole theme of Dream Builders, as we're going to be doing it over the next four weeks, every Sunday evening, we're having something called The Conversation. And basically, it's an opportunity for us to get uh, down to Corfmullen and to talk about in more detail some of the content that we've been pushing. So if you've got any questions, you can text them to that number on the bottom of this handout. Anyway, when I was about 10 years old, I got invited to a birthday party. Back when I was growing up, it didn't feel like there was as many birthday parties as kids have these days. Does anyone else feel that? I mean, it just feels like my kids are going to a party. I mean, they're probably just more popular than me, to be honest. I think I got invited to about three between the age of naught and 21, and one of them was Phil's wedding, so that was cool. Um, But when I was 10 years old, I got an interesting invite because up until this point, kind of a birthday party was either go for a kick around down like the local wreck or go around someone's house and just trash it with your friends, get all their toys out and just leave kind of chaos and carnage for parents. Anyone else had parties like that? Uh, Good, not just me. Um, Well, this one was different. He, he, this guy, Ryan Armstrong, he was one of my friends from junior school, and he was probably the nerdiest friend I had at the time. I've got loads now. I've got Richard. I've got Phil and stuff. But at the time, he sent me this invite that was kind of had all of this NASA writing on, okay? And it was all about astronomy and all this. And it says, you are invited to come and watch the premiere of Apollo 13. Anyone remember that film, that Tom Hanks film, right? And I remember opening that as a 10-year-old thinking, it looks rubbish. Like, I love cartoons and animation and comedy, but this seems to be quite serious. It's like a historical drama about an event that actually happened. But I remember, because I didn't get invited to many parties, I thought I'd better oblige and go, because this is an opportunity to kind of hang out with friends on a Saturday. And so I went and sat down, watched this film. And for those of you who don't know the premise, it's the real-life story of astronauts who are venturing on the third mission to land on the moon. But during spaceflight, chaos breaks out and an oxygen tank blows, which is kind of a bad thing when you're in space because oxygen is kind of important for humans, okay? And so they've got this issue, but it's not just a Hollywood script. This thing actually happened. And when this oxygen tank blew up, they said those five really legendary famous words now that we think of when we think of NASA. Does anyone remember them? Houston, we have a problem. And of course they had a problem. It was easy to identify the problem because they were in space where there isn't a lot of oxygen and not a lot of help, and they needed like, a solution to the problem they were facing. How on earth were they going to get back to Earth? Forget landing on the moon. How are they going to get back? And so they said this, Houston, we have a problem. 
NASA Ground Control assembled some of the cleverest people in the organization to find a solution to this problem with the limited resource they had on board the space flight. And they kind of came up with this master plan of if we can just get it to orbit the dark side of the moon when it comes around the back of it, and I'm sure they didn't speak like this because they're clever. <laughs> Imagine that. If you just go around the back of it, right, get into the gravitational force and it will propel you back to Earth. Don't worry about it. Okay, but they come up with this master plan because they had uh, radio back. Houston, we have a problem. Now, I think, actually, we have multiple problems in life that we don't always call problems because we don't see how detrimental they actually are to our future. Like, obviously, this is a problem for the space, uh, the astronauts on Apollo 13 because it meant that their life was in the balance. But actually, how many problems are we facing in life that we don't necessarily understand the gravitas of the problem we're facing? And really, I want to talk about that today. And I want to say, Sunny Hill, we have a problem. And I want to say mankind, we have a problem. And I want to say churches of the West, we have a problem. And this is the problem. We are losing our ability to dream. We are losing our ability to imagine. You know, actually, dreaming is a God-given kind of potential that you have. The ability to dream something different to what you're experiencing in reality. And I think there is an assault on our senses. In fact, you could say it like this. That we are discipled more by the culture of the world, and this is in your notes, than the kingdom of the word. To be disciples means to kind of follow, to be conformed into the likeness of something. And as Christians, of course, we consider ourselves to be disciples of Christ, being transformed into his likeness. But for many of us, we are being discipled more by the culture of the world than the, the, kingdom, the word, the kingdom of the word. <laughs> Just effortlessly flows off the tongue, doesn't it? Now, this is really crucial for us to understand. Because I believe in the context in which we find ourselves, no generation has had the assault on in the same way. I think kind of due to social media and YouTube and all this sort of jazzes and advancements and stuff, we're actually losing our ability to cultivate a healthy imagination. You know, I look at my kids, I've got three boys, an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. And I remember the first time I saw Caleb not playing Minecraft. Minecraft is a game where you can build kind of your dream realm or whatever. Not playing Minecraft, but watching other kids on YouTube playing Minecraft. Anyone else got kids that do stuff like that? Thank you for being honest. I appreciate you. I love you. You make me feel like a less bad dad. Um, and even Zeke, my youngest, who's three, would watch videos of other children opening Kinder Eggs. Like, it makes it sound like we're awful parents. Like, no, instead of buying you a Kinder Egg, you can watch someone else <laughs> open Kinder Egg. The irony is actually that we have bought Minecraft the game, yet for some reason, they like watching other people playing games. And I think that's kind of common to our psyche right now in the world, that we are more inclined to watch somebody else do stuff, to be spectators of somebody else's life, than to really live intentionally and live our dreams and our visions for the future. Don't say you don't do it. Don't tell me you don't scroll through Facebook to see what other people are doing. Like, listen, I'm not kind of saying that stuff's bad. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. We're having a January blackout right now. We've taken the iPads away from the kids. So parenting's really interesting right now in the birdhouse. They're having to learn to play with, what is this Lego you speak of? <laughs> I thought it was an app. But it's an interesting thought because, like, 
Actually, what we're seeing is as humankind, we are being conditioned to look through the window of someone else's life rather than live our own. And when we do that, we are diminishing our imagination. And as we do that, the world is trying to sell us a dream that it wants us to have, which is this, more money, more sex, more power. That's really the dream of the world. If I just get that house on Canford Cliffs, I mean, Wallace Downs are right, <laughs> but Canford Cliffs, boy, if I just got that house overlooking like Shore Road or something like that, man, my, my life would be sweet. You know, all the challenges I'm currently facing, man, I'd be, I'd be happy. I'd never complain again. If I, just, if I just got that new kind of, I was going to say Ford, but that's too little, isn't it? If I just, that's rubbish. If I, Ferrari, if I just got that Tesla, oh, then, then all of the deficit of my world is going to be addressed because God knows he wants me to have a Tesla. If I just get the new iPhone 11, uh, or I could just wake another eight days because then the next one's coming out. Um, if I can just get the next thing, then it's going to address something of this deficit within me because actually the world wants us to buy into this dream and this deception that if we just buy stuff we don't need with money we don't have <laughs> to impress people we don't even like then our life is going to be happier in some way anyone tracking with me right now thank you all eight of you right I love this uh, Phil referenced it in the one thing bible plan if you're tracking with that on Wednesday Psalm 119 the psalmist says this make me walk Make me, not help me, make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. The psalmist is suggesting an alternative route to happiness. Not so much just buying the next thing you think is going to address that deficit, but rather living according to the word of God. It says, give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for money. Now, let me tell you this. I'm not one of those preachers that say social media is bad. Like I say, I've got it. I'm not saying that money's bad. The Bible doesn't say money's bad. The money's neutral. The money can be a wonderful servant to our dreams and visions, but it can also be an awful, terrible master that kind of restricts us and limits us from reaching our dreams and visions. But the psalmist says, turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. In other words, the psalmist is saying, listen, there's another future you can have. There's another dream you can dream. So what is a dream? I've defined it this way, to dream is to see and feel a reality that isn't your present state. Uh, Josh, can you just get that board for me, please? To dream is to see and feel a reality that isn't your present state. God has created us with the propensity to dream. Anyone can dream. I don't think dreaming is exclusive to Christians. If you're not Christian today, so much of this message is still relevant to you because you need to cultivate the dreaming facet of your brain, okay? So I'm going to say what Jennifer Aniston used to say in those hair adverts. This is the science bit. No one? No? Okay, right, fine. Clearly watch too much TV. This is the science bit. Okay, right. No, sack that then. The, what you're supposed to say is concentrate. No one remember that advert? No, I don't really watch TV either. I'm normally interceding for Spain or China, so I don't want Now this is the science bit. Concentrate. No, okay, cool. Right. Okay, that died a death. Thank goodness I didn't do that in the rest of the services today, right? So this is your brain. This is your brain right here, and no offense, but this is your face. Oh, oh. You kind of got a double chin developing. You need to get back down the gym, because you're kind of, let's just call that a little one of those goaties. They're coming, they will come back. Is that goatee right? Okay. 
Did someone say that sideburns? I'll give it sideburns. I'll give it some ch- chops. Is that good? Like that? A bit of Elvis? A bit of a quick... Come on, you're distracting me now anyways. Although I will colour it in. It's good hair. Okay. This is a man. I think he used to play in Sex Pistols by the look of him, but... This is his brain, okay? Science tells us that our brain consists of multiple lobes, okay? Um, muscles and pathways that help us form patterns of thinking. There's a bottom part of our brain that is called the occipital. Everybody say occipital. The occipital lobe, okay? The occipital lobe is at the bottom of our brain and it's really connected to our eyes, okay? So basically, we see something... And the first place that processes that in our brain is our occipital lobe. And it's kind of perceiving, trying to make sense of what it's seeing. So obviously, if we're watching adverts on the TV, we're kind of engaging our occipital lobe to go, oh, interesting, ah, yeah. You know, you watch QVC, ah, a knife sharpener that also doubles up as a rubber or something ridiculous. And you go, oh, now I must have that because I've seen it. And my mind now is saying, I want, I want, I want. Has anyone else ever bought anything junk online before? No, neither have I. Gosh, tough crowd. Flip. Okay. The other side of our lobe, our brain, is the parietal. Everybody say parietal. Parietal. P-A-R-I-E-T-A-L. Our parietal lobe. I would argue that this is uh, a God-given facet of our brain that allows us to imagine. In fact, science says that. If you look at the Life Science website, which is where I get so much of this blog stuff, is actually uh, our parietal lobe is the part which allows us to imagine something different to what we're seeing. So, for example, you might be at work tomorrow morning at your desk at 8.30, ready to start your long day, and your occipital kind of lobe is working overdrive, going, okay, here's my desk, here's my computer, there's my boss, let's make sure he can't see my screen, all that sort of stuff, okay? But our parietal lobe is going, think of Ibiza, think of the beach, think of all this stuff. And it's kind of interesting, because they've kind of see through brain scans that these two come into huge conflict all the time. Because the messages we're getting from our occipital lobe are traveling up and our kind of imagination that we're conceiving in our parietal lobe is flowing down. And so they say that there's like carnish in the brain, like literally I've got this imagination thing. And normally what happens is we generally feed more on the stuff we're seeing than on the stuff we're imagining. You think about kids, kids who have a natural born ability to imagine some ridiculous stuff. Like my kids, last weekend we built an epic den and they could see things that I couldn't see, like monsters that weren't there and all this sort of stuff. But eventually, if we're good parents, we train them out of that crazy way of living and we say, no, no, don't imagine too much because, you know, imagination doesn't pay the bills, right? And so what we do is we strengthen our occipital lobe at the detriment to our parietal lobe. This is really important for us to understand because I believe that as a church, God wants us to rekindle our ability to dream and imagine. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says this, we live by faith and not by sight. So actually, you know, the rest of the world, they have to see it to believe it. It's the way it goes. If I don't engage my occipital lobe in the process, then it's not for me. But for believers, we experience something of the goodness of God, and now we live according to faith and not by sight. I believe that our parietal lobe is the place where faith really grows within us, starts to give us bigger dreams, bigger visions. 
If you're not really understanding what I'm talking about, I'm going to just show you a couple of verses from the Old Testament that might help us. Joshua, this amazing character in the Old Testament, got his own book called Joshua, was the successor to Moses. If you've never heard of Joshua, you may have heard of Moses. Joshua is the next leader after Moses. God gives Joshua a promise in Joshua 1. God says, wherever you step your foot, I'm going to give you, it's your land. Okay? This is the promise. Six chapters later, Joshua is marching with the Israelites and they come up against this fortress of a city, otherwise known as Jericho. They reckon it's the most fortified city in the history of cities, like 15-foot thick walls with a 10-foot gap, cavity, and then another 15-foot Like these, these walls were huge. And God's given Joshua a promise. Listen, wherever you step your foot, I'm going to give you. Now he's looking at a city, and if I was Joshua, I'd be thinking, I'll go round, right? Because I'm sure the promised land can be behind there somewhere. But God's heart for them was to go through, okay? It's really important. So we read this in Joshua 6 verse 2. Now the gates of Jericho were securely, what does it say? Barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Jericho, the city, fortified city, was shut up. It was impenetrable. No one went in, no one went out. The occipital lobe was saying, it's done. This place is shut down. It's bad news. It's like, how are you going to overcome this? Then we read the second part, verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Does anyone else find that even just a little bit humorous? Just a tiny bit? A little tiny bit? No? <laughs> really? I think that's funny. Joshua's looking at this fortified city. Oh, flip. This city's huge. We're never going to get through this. Maybe you're looking at problems right now in your world, relational tensions. Oh, this is too much, too big. Like, where are we going to go? Like, what I'm seeing, it's not really, I can't see how God's going to work in this. Yet God's saying, see, I have given Jericho into your hands. No, you haven't. Here's my hands. There's Jericho. The fighting men are on the inside. We're kind of scuppered. But God is demanding of Joshua, listen, Joshua, I need you to see from another place. I need you to see with different eyes. I need you to uncouple yourself from the limitations and restrictions of what you see in your physical kind of being. And I want you to see the plans I have for you. Amen? Come on. You can get noisy. It's all good. Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask, or what does it say? Imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, imagine coming from the Latin word amargo, which means to picture yourself. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. I think this is like an invitation from God. Saying, look on, how big can you ask? How miraculous can you dream? How bold can you imagine? Don't, like, don't do that small fry imagination. Go big. Because I'm able to do immeasurably more. Think about this, your marriage, dream, dream big, your kids, don't be content to just go, oh, if we're just getting through school, everything else gets, no, dream big for their life and their future, have a bold imagination, yield it to God, and God says, I can do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine according to my power that is at work within you, not your power, his power, so what's your responsibility? I believe it's to ask and to imagine. Any amens in the house? Yeah. 
Come on. Immeasurable. More. I think of Martin Luther King, absolute legend, like the civil rights movement through the 60s and... uh, Is it 60s? Yeah, it's 60s, isn't it? The 60s, in a time of huge racial inequality in America, sweeping the land and stuff. Martin Luther kind of steps up to a crowd of more than 200,000 people on the Lincoln Memorial Steps in Washington, D.C., and he kind of just relays this message. And what does he call the message? Come on. I have a dream, he says. And I love what he says. He opens this. He opens this way. I say to you today, my friends, that in spite of the difficulties and frustrations of the moment, I thought the board was there. I was about to draw on nothing. Um, I saw it again. <laughs> that really threw me. I say to you, my friends, one day, if we just imagine it, you know, that's fine. I say to you today, my friends, that in spite of the difficulties and frustrations that I see, he says, I still have a dream. Like, regardless of what the world is pushing on us, regardless of the news reports you're hearing, regardless of the reality we find ourselves in, Martin Luther King says, I still have a dream. I'm still willing to imagine for crazy stuff. He says, I have a dream that one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with the little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. That's an inconceivable dream in the 60s in Alabama. That's absolute bonkers, where racial tensions are at an all-time high, different queues, different schools, different shops, different entertainment places. He says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Well done. One well-studied person in Sunny Hill this morning. Great. Their character. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, which is this. This is in the American Constitution. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream, he says, that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I love this. Like Martin Luther's dream isn't so much just a a subjective kind of vision that's out there. It's actually got detail. He's saying like, this is my dream that one day little black boys will be able to hold hands with little white Girls, there's, there's, I've got this dream that one day in these places of slavery capitals, we're going to sit down at the table of brotherhood together. And these dreams so compelled him that he ultimately paid the biggest price you can. He took, he, you know, his life was taken from him for his dream because it was that contentious in the day he was in. I believe that was a God-given dream for Martin Luther King. We know him to be a preacher and a Christian and stuff. But what dreams does God have for you? That he wants you to speak out into your world. Say, I've got a dream. I've got a dream for my future. I've got a dream for my kids. Now, I like what Job 33 says. Speaks of dreams. God speaks again and again, though people do not recognize it. He speaks in dreams and visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on people, as they lie in their beds, he whispers in their ears. He whispers in their ears. Like, I think sometimes God speaks through our dreams in our sleep because it's the one time that our eyes are kind of shut. Like, he's not contending with two-way traffic. I know I've had a number of dreams like this, and I love the fact that God works in this way because it means when Louise says, oh, Dom, can you help, like, uh, do the dishes? I can say, sorry, I need to go and receive from the Lord. I'm just going to take a lie down in my bedroom. and It looks like I'm sleeping, but I'm actually interceding for the family, okay? Oh, you guys are tough today. Right, anyways... 
speaks in dreams, in visions of the night. And there's loads of people in the Bible who have that. Joseph had his dream of prominence. Jacob had his dream of the ladder going to heaven with angels ascending, descending. Solomon had his dreams. Daniel had dreams. In the New Testament, Joseph, Mary's fiance, who'd just been doing it at Christmas season, had a dream confirming Mary's witness that her pregnancy was going to be of God. So many dreams in the Bible where people, God ministers to them in their sleep. But it's also possible to dream when you're awake and we call those visions in the Bible. Abraham is a great example. Abraham, who's pushing 100, gets a vision from God. God says, come out of your tent, look at the stars, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. Abraham's looking at his 100-year-old body and going, have you seen me? (laughs) Have you seen my wife? She's 90. We've never been able to have kids, yet you're saying to get a bigger vision. He was awake. He was like conscious in that moment, yet that vision compelled him for the next 25 years until God came good on the promise. Samuel had a vision and an understanding of his calling as a young boy. Isaiah the prophet had loads of visions. In the New Testament, Pete had a vision of the sheep being lowered from heaven. And that's kind of interesting. Maybe you look at that in small groups this week. Ananias had a vision from God telling him to visit Saul, the persecutor of the early church. Paul had several visions during his mission trips. So many visions and dreams. Why are they important? Because God's primary way of leading people into his future is through dreams and visions. That's on your notepad. God's primary way of leading people into his future is through dreams and visions. This is why Sunny Hill, we have a problem. If we are losing our ability to dream, if we are losing our ability to imagine a different future, then actually God is going to struggle to lead us into all that he has for us. We've got to cultivate our dreams and our visions. I love what Peter says in Acts 2. He says, in the last days, referring to a prophecy in Joel, God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In other words, Peter's saying, now is that day. It is the last days. We don't know how long we've got left, but God says he's going to pour his spirit out and we're going to have dreams and visions of the future because that's how God leads his church. And so this is my conviction. God has a dream for this nation. God has a dream for this town God has a dream for this church and God has a dream for my family and he's got a dream for yours do you believe that do you believe that so there are four types of people when it comes to dreams are you ready number one people you actually this bit isn't in your notes because there's a bit of an error uh, aka cock up if you want to scribble out the explanation under the first heading under four types of people this is what should be there people who go through life only living according to reality People who go through life living only according to reality. They're obviously not bad people. They just live according to the limitations of their eyes. What do we call those? Non-dreamers. In other words, they're the kind of people who um, just content to just not dream or have any bold aspirations, to do that nine to five for 60 years, pay somebody else's mortgage and then retire at the end of it and kind of just shrink off the radar of the map and die happily and not really make any uh, earthquakes on earth. Non-dreamers, they're cool. I mean, nothing against them, but it is what it is. They don't dream, okay? The next one is this, people who have the ability to see what isn't there and this is in your notes. Yet imagine an, an exciting future that is yet to come to pass. What do we call these people? Dreamers. Dreamers. Put your hand up if you're a dreamer. Come on, daydream believers. Dreamer. Dreamer. People who are able to see an exciting future that hasn't yet come to pass. The third one, uh, I hope you're not one of these. People who out of insecurity 
take it upon themselves to ensure people stay connected to reality by belittling dreams, using any tool available. Generally, these tools will look like sarcasm, negativity, cynicism. You've got to do what? What do you think God said to you? Are you mad? Who's going to pay the bills? We call these dream killers. So <laughs> I call them dream killers. I'm going to do that again. That's dramatic. We call these dream killers. <laughs> and we hate. No, we don't hate, do we, Caleb? We don't hate in the birdhouse. We just dislike an awful lot. Dream killers. Dream killers. Like, killing my dreams right now. Put your hand up if you know a dream killer or two. Don't look at your spouse in this moment. Please don't look at your spouse. It's not, it's not going to go well with it. Right? The fourth one, people who have learned how to harness the power of dreams by not just envisioning a different reality, but using it as a motivation to start building it before they have all the answers. What do we call these? What do you reckon? Dream builders! Come on. I was expecting party poppers, confetti cannons, and everything at that one. We should have set that up next week. Next week we'll do that. Dream builders. This is what God wants for his people. Not just to dream bold dreams, but to start reposturing their life to living them out. It's all very well to have this bold dream for your marriage, but then not change. <laughs> oh, I'd love it if in our marriage we just were nicer to one another. Oh, what are you looking at, you idiot? Oh, I'd just love it if my kids were more positive about this crappy old life. <laughs> That's quite funny, actually. Make a note of that for next time. I hate it when people are negative. <laughs> Joy killers, I hate them. Oh, I don't hate them. I dislike them an awful lot. God is looking for people who will realign their life in accordance with the reality that is yet to come to pass. Dream builders. So Martin Luther King was a great example of that rallies, campaigns, trying to model what this dream was that he saw in his parietal lobe. And it's this that we're going to be talking about over the next three weeks. How are we going to become dream builders? How are we not just going to be stuck at this place where we just dream, but how are we going to begin to start building towards the dreams of our hearts? So at the end, as we end, do you want to jump up, Ben? And I don't mean just jump up, I mean <laughs> move to the keyboard and play nicely. Imagine if you just jumped up and then sat back down. Picture, logician right there. Nehemiah. Nehemiah, this interesting character in the Old Testament. Write this in your notes, right? Who was he? Nehemiah was a child of the Holocaust. Yeah, really? I thought the Holocaust happened like 70 years ago. I'm talking about like one of the original Holocausts. A mass genocide on the people of God. The Babylonian Empire sweeping through Israel and Judah, laying waste to all the cities and taking captive people, like Israelites, all of God's people. It's crazy. We know that ultimately God allows this to happen because of their rebellion in days gone by, and God is wanting to bring them back to him, and so this is going to be kind of one way that that's going to be played out. But Nehemiah is interesting. Because he's a child of the Holocaust. What do I mean by that? He never saw the devastation firsthand. He was a product of the Holocaust. In other words, his mom and dad were caught up in the conflict, but he was born in Babylon. So he didn't have a living memory of Jerusalem. He didn't have a living memory of the temple. He didn't have a living memory of the walls of the city. Like to him, he was only always known Babylonian rule and Persian rule in the Persian rule towards the end. And somehow Nehemiah had kind of flourished to a measure that he was in the 
uh, the, the palace, the Persian palace, as the cupbearer to the king. And that sounds kind of cool, but let me explain to you what that is. Someone would bring a drink for the king. Nehemiah's role, because he wasn't considered important because he was an Israelite, would have to drink it. Great excuse for a drink. Make sure that he didn't die drinking it, and then he would bear it to the king, cook bear it to the king. And it's kind of interesting because Nehemiah, having not grown up in Jerusalem, still had a heart for Jerusalem. To help with the context of this, I want to read to you something from a book called Children of the Holocaust by this lady called Helen Epstein. She wasn't in the Holocaust, but her parents met during the Holocaust and then conceived her after the Holocaust. And she speaks of her upbringing. She says this, Before I was five, I asked my mother, who put that number on your arm? Why did they put that number on your arm? Did it hurt when they did it? Mom, why, why don't I have grandparents? Mom, why did the Germans kill them? Mom, where, where, where are my grandparents buried? Mom, why aren't they buried? If, if they're not buried, then where are they? My mother said that before the war, my father had two parents and two brothers, all five were gassed to death in Auschwitz. Before the war, she had a mother, a father and a husband. All three were shot dead by the German SS. She and my father had been deported to the Terezin ghetto along with most Czechoslovakian Jews and then sent to a series of camps including, including Auschwitz. Like many survivors, they met after the war and married as soon as they could assemble to requ requisite documents. Like most survivors, they had a child as soon as possible. This Helen Epstein is a product of the Holocaust, even though she wasn't in the Holocaust. And she speaks in a book about this reality that through her life, she was carrying an iron box on the inside of her, like that. She said it's like an iron coffin that she can't articulate or understand, but what she knows is she's walking through life and this world with serious weight. Like this weight on the inside of her is affecting how she sees everything. She says, I never saw the Holocaust firsthand, but I'd hear the stories. So I would go to the cinema with my friends, watch a film, and I'd be watching the exits to see if any SS soldiers would come in. And in that, you see the emotive kind of connection to what preceded her even before she was around. Nehemiah was just the same. He was a product of this Babylonian regime. He had heard stories about the persecution and the execution. He had heard stories about the city, yet he himself had never been to the city. And then we read in Nehemiah 1, one of his brothers comes back from Jerusalem. It says, Hanani, one of my brothers, this is Nehemiah writing, came to visit me with some other men. Imagine this is one of his diary installments. Other men who had just arrived from Judah, I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, Nehemiah, Things aren't going well. Things aren't going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the pride of the city and the protection of the city, they've been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. We'll jump into that more next week. But if we go into the next chapter, we read that Nehemiah gets to go to Jerusalem and he's got a vision in his heart. It says, the city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. I have a dream. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. 
Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. Everybody say that. Yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the work. It's a remarkable story because Nehemiah had never seen Jerusalem, yet he had a burden to rebuild it. It wasn't enough for him to go, oh, one day someone will come along and they'll address that. God was saying, you're the man, now's the time. Even though Nehemiah would have brought his dysfunction and all of his disqualifications to the table, having never seen the walls before, having never seen the city, even though he would come, God would say, you're the man, this is the moment, now's the hour. I want to say this to you today. What walls in your world have been destroyed? What walls have been burnt down? What gates have been raised to the ground? What parameters, what relationships, what dysfunction, what what carnage is going on in your world? And God might be saying to you today, listen, you need to get a dream of walls that are rebuilt, that your life may flourish. Maybe you're walking through life today and you're going, I don't know what it is, but I feel like there's something on the inside of me that's affecting everything. Like, I feel like I'm just struggling through life and I can't articulate it, but it feels like you're carrying this iron box on the inside of you and you can't make sense of it and you can't get rid of it. Well, I want to tell you this, that in Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, everyone who's tired out, everyone who's weary. Anybody feeling weary? Jesus says, come to me, come to me. And you might not be able to articulate this box. You may not be able to understand this box. And this box may well be shackling your ability to imagine and dream a different future. But I want to say to you today, you can come to Jesus and Jesus can take that from you this morning. He can take it from you. He took it from me. And don't get me wrong, there's still days where I feel like I take the box back off him. Where I try to control my own future. Control my own decisions. But I just feel that God wants you to become uncoupled and unshackled from that iron box of your past that is restricting and resisting the future that God has for you. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. And to conclude this morning, I just want to read to you a dream that God gave me two years ago. Some of you may be familiar with this, but this is kind of important for us in this series. It was a dream while I was asleep, and the band can come up now, that would be good. It's a dream while I was asleep, and uh, God, I believe, gave me a vision of what the future of the church looks like. And um, while there's some detail in it, I don't think it's extensive, I think there's more. But just let me read it to you. In the dream, I was stood in the back right hand of a stage looking out in a warehouse. The warehouse was generous inside and there were thousands of people gathering. It was beyond full to capacity. It was so busy that there were people sat on the front of the stage because there was no place left to sit in the congregational area. A large screen that presents words for worship was behind me and whilst there were many remarkable things about the space, the thing that was most impressive was the expectation in the people. It felt almost tangible, the intensity of expectation and and anticipation of the people. I stood there looking out at the massive crowd, knowing that something was stirring and that God was about to do something. Worship had already begun, even though no one had shared a welcome, no one had sung a lyric, and no one had strummed a chord. Praise was rising in the people, even though no one was leading them. And as a leader, I felt the need to step up to lead. 
Now there was a keyboard in front of me, so I turned to the left to nod to the drummer, which you you might be able to see, the drummer to begin the worship. But as I turned, I noticed there was no drummer. No offense, Micah, we love you. There was also no bassist, no offense, Gina, we love you, or band other than the keys and acoustic guitar. The presence of God was so thick that the hairs on my body stood an end. I just stood there happy to wait and soak in the spirit-filled atmosphere. Some people were talking, some people were laughing, some people were sitting, some people were standing, some people were praying, some were watching, some were waiting, and in the following moments, a sound emerged from the back right-hand section of the warehouse, and it was the sound of people singing in unison. It was beautiful, not because of the quality of the tone or melody, but simply because it was completely hope-filled. These people were battle-tested. They had been through struggles and had faced the difficulties of life, but perseverance had run its course, character had been matured, and now these people lacked nothing and they held nothing back hope had been born on the inside of them and now a sound was emerging the song that was being sung was filled with life energy hope and faith everybody joined in this song of praise the worship was not the focus the person was not the focus i was not the focus the focus was clearly on god moving in the moment people were dancing jumping shouting celebrating and i remember thinking in my dream imagine going to the church where the people are dancing and now we're starting to see that play out The energy was intense. The anticipation was immense. The presence of God was heavy. I joined in with the song, but I knew I wasn't leading the sound that was emerging. I was simply only serving the sound that was emerging. This was like nothing I had ever experienced before. It was electric. It was pure ecstasy. It was life-giving. It was faith-filling. It was power-filled. It was heaven on earth. It was the church. It was a gathering of God's people exactly how we wanted it. It felt like this gathering gave purpose and meaning to everything. Everything in the week built up to this moment and everything the following week flowed out of this moment. And as I looked over the gathering, I recognized two people in the crowd who I saw in the supermarket the day before. They weren't saved when I saw them previously, but somehow they'd come to this church this day in this service and they'd encountered God and they were lost in worship following the expression of those around them. I never felt such a pure buzz as I did watching on what God was doing. As I woke from this dream, I felt gutted as I wanted to return to where I had come from. I knew immediately that God had given me a vision. He gave me a picture of what the future could look like and this picture would serve to help me build according to that pattern. I woke up in bits, excited and desperate because of what I saw. Since that day, neither of those feelings have subsided. In my bed, I cried, I prayed, I repented and pleaded with the Lord to take me back to that dream. And I ponder these dreams regularly and the same emotions consume me. I can still remember them to the last detail. So over the next three weeks, we're going to unpack how we're going to start to build that dream, but also how we're going to build the dream for our families and marriages. Amen. Let's stand together. Father God, I thank you for your goodness. I pray this morning, God, that you would just minister to people, Lord God, that you would take away those iron boxes, Lord, and and shackle people from despair and depression, Lord Father. God, we pray, God, that we would get a vision and a picture of the future you have for us, God, that we would flourish in this life and we would see the gates reestablished and the walls rebuilt to our world, God. We're expectant, we're excited. God, we ask you to rekindle our imagination in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.